talking with Carrie Barron. She's the author of The Creativity Cure, How to Build Happiness with Your Own Two Hands. So tell me, Carrie, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm a psychiatrist and I'm affiliated with Columbia Medical School and the Psychoanalytic Center there. I also trained as a, as a psychoanalyst. I'm also a blogger. Um, I spend a lot of time writing and blogging for Psychology Today and for my own website. And, you know, I just try to put out pieces that, that I hope uh, people can find useful and helpful. So, that, you know, that's what I do. And I have a private practice as well. How did you get into this type of work? I was always interested uh, in creativity, and I was always interested in being a therapist. My parents were both social workers, and my mom was a clinician, a therapist, and I was just really fascinated by the things that she said, the way that she thought about you know, cause and effect with regard to behaviors and mood and how people's inner lives can really dictate what happens to them and how if we really understand what's going on with somebody, if somebody understands themselves, it can make a big difference in, in their happiness and their health. So I was always interested in that. And then I came from a family with a lot of artists and I was not, um, I did sing for a long time, but I, I was very fascinated by the things that they made and their relationship with the things that they made and, and what it did for them to make things. So I've been interested in this for a long, long time. I would say since, I don't know, since I was a child, but I really started researching it in medical school um, and been captivated by the subject ever since. And I, and I think uh, there are real healing possibilities for people in creativity. And I think that's the most important message that you know, I would love to get out to, to listeners and to people. I know you're most well known for your book, The Creativity Cure, How to Build Happiness with Your Own Two Hands. What is the book about? The book is about wellness. It's about how you can follow a five-step prescription and really find a way to get inside yourself, not in an egotistical way, but in a self-understanding way, so that you can make the right choices, so that things that are hurting you or blocking you can be released and understood, and so that you can move to a place where you can make things um, and feel better about living. So that's what it's about. It's about wellness through creativity and self-understanding self and self-expression. Self-expression, whether we do it through a conversation with a close friend or, um, you know, in a religious setting where we can talk to a priest or somebody that we can lay bare our heart to, um, whether it's prose, uh, you know, words, or whether it's through action, fixing things, cooking, making, even, even redecorating our homes can be a creative experience that can lift mood. I'm curious how come you wrote the book? You, you know, I think it was just in me. You know, some people talk a lot, a lot about having a baby or something that just has to get out. And I just was brimming with, with the need to, to convey the message. I, I just felt that... Um, there, there are many people you know, that suffer from, from despair, quiet despair, mild depression, moderate depression, sometimes severe, people that have a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress now. And 
you know, we really wanted to offer another method. There are some great methods for helping out there, but creativity is one I think that is undervalued. So I wanted to, to get that out. And I also think that in this technological time where we spend a lot of time on our devices, there are tremendous creative opportunities within devices, but there, it's a particular kind of creativity where sort of things come at you and you choose and you select and you do programs. What we're advocating is a deeper kind of creativity, spontaneous thoughts and feelings that come out of yourself in your daydreams that makes you feel good about living. I think we've all experienced that, you know, whether as children, as adults, when, when you're alone and you're fooling around with something, maybe you make up a meal, maybe you're whittling a stick, maybe you go out in the woods as a child and build a fort. Those are the kind of life-affirming experiences that we want people to get back to, in addition to their techno, techno, techno lives. I know you mentioned about depression and anxiety there, Carrie, but what are the causes of, say, depression and anxiety? Well, I think it's very different for different people. Certainly there are some biological components, but I think there's there's new research now that's coming out. Um, Sherry Turkle at MIT has done a lot of work on human relationships with devices and computers. And what she has found is that when we're not having real conversations with people looking face-to-face, in the flesh, spending time together, that we can get depressed. We think we're connecting when we're connecting all over the place in our devices, and we are in a certain way, but we need deeper stuff. We need deeper kinds of connections to people to feel safe and to feel less alone. And so um, I think people are getting depressed from that. I'm not sure what's happening in Ireland, but in this country, We've seen a great increase in young people in the 20-something age group of depression and anxiety and stress in the college-age students. There's a lot of emphasis on how you look and your performance and all these this imagery sort of of you rather than just hanging out, being sloppy and doing whatever you want to do and laughing with your friends. We, we need that to keep us well and to keep us from getting as depressed and anxious as we might. You know, a little anxiety and a little depression is normal. And, um, you know, you wouldn't be human without it. But when it gets to be too much, there are ways to combat it and to feel to feel better. And is there a way for a person to know if their depression levels or anxiety levels is too much? Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of shame. I think people feel ashamed to reach out and they feel so they manage it alone. But if you're crying a lot and you're feeling like you don't want to get out of bed or you're feeling like you just don't have the energy to be with other people or go out, if you feel helpless or you feel hopeless, it's a matter of degree. I mean, we can have it for a day, maybe a week, but if it goes on, you and it's really extreme and you notice you're not interested in anything anymore, then you might want to, well, first of all, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in getting some help from a therapist or, or a professional. But in addition to that, um, if it's severe, that's what I would do. I would recommend. But if it's mild and there's just a kind of a discomfort in living and you're just feeling like Eeyore, you know, a little under the weather all the time, 
one might try to get involved in some creativity, creative action that can lead to greater wellness and feeling better. Do you think there is a better way to understand and respond to depression? I think we need to have a lot of options, right? So we have many options for treating depression. And what, what we're trying to say is let's add one more. Let's, let's look at the person. Let's look at each individual and let's look at their childhood, things that have interested them, things they got excited about as a child or an adult. But sometimes we do have to go back to childhood because people get very locked into their work and routines and they kind of forget about those excitements that they had. Maybe they wanted to play an instrument. Maybe they wanted to play the fiddle or the guitar. Or maybe there's more singing that they need to do because that lifted their heart. So each time, you know, I want to sit down with an individual and I want, I want to learn about that person. I want to understand that person. I want to know who they are. What's their story? What, what has excited them? What do they dream about? What do they, do they wish they could write a book? Do they wish they could write a song? So what we want to do is help them find the very unique part of themselves that would be a form of self-expression for them. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe they're a fantastic cook and they're a creative cook. Maybe they're, they have beautiful eye for design, for beautiful design. But there's a lot of times people are inhibiting those, those talents or those, those ways of expressing themselves. And so much of the work is about a disinhibition or helping people to explore, make mistakes. You're not going to be great at it if you start playing with it now, but you get better and then it gives you pleasure. So yes, we have medications, we have you know, psychotherapy for depression, we have being in nature, we have having stronger friendships. All those things are great for depression, but this is one more that we would, you know, that we think can be very, very helpful. And what are your thoughts around medication as a way to treat depression? Well, I, I think that it's absolutely necessary for some people. I think it's really important to try to find the right medication because people sometimes have to try a few things before it works. So I'm, I am a believer in that. But I think I'm not sure how things are over there. But here there's a lot of over medication. A lot of times people are just handed a pill and, you know, you'll feel better. Certainly it can make people feel better, but it's also, look, we're human beings. We need to connect to each other. I think telling your story, expressing yourself in addition to taking a medication or in sometimes instead of, you know, that can be enough. Plus the other thing that's, that I think is very important for depression and wellness is a lot of people need downtime, quiet time that they find through different activities that are Eastern, you know, med meditation, Tai Chi, all of this can slow us down and give us a little bit more perspective, make us think of a higher power that put, you know, put things in, in our minds in such a way that we don't feel so overwhelmed by them. You mentioned it earlier there, Carrie, as well, in regard to say, a certain shame or even like stigma attached to depression as well. But why do you think this happens? Yeah, I think that is so such an unfortunate thing. You know, there is absolutely no shame in sadness. I mean, life is hard. You know, things happen to people. People struggle and everyone struggles in one way or another. Everybody has something to work on. I, you know, I think here one thing that that has happened that's really good is there's less 
Shane, perhaps, you know, because people get, will get out there on the internet, whether it's anonymous, I see this on my blogs a lot. You know, sometimes people will identify themselves, sometimes they won't. But um, the the anonymous signature is a way to express yourself without revealing who you are, which I think is great. But and you don't your your psychological situation is private. You don't have to tell people about it. But if you want to say it's you and who you are, people get it. I mean, I, I'm this always heartens me a lot that. When you come out there and you say, I'm struggling, I'm sad, I'm depressed, people reach out. You know, there's a lot of good people in the world. This is one thing I have learned. I've seen this, too, in my work, how people really, you just have to find the right people who support you through it, who want to take care of you, who don't criticize you or judge you for that. Do you think that said stigma is changing? You know, I think it is changing. I think it depends a lot on the family you grew up in because, you know, for example, my parents were both therapists. My mother used to say people should go to therapists like they go to dentists, like they should just do it regularly. You know, they should just be normal. You know, it should just be normal to go to a therapist and, and talk to somebody. You can be a high functioning, hardworking, you know, loving, you know, great family person and use some support, need some support. So, you know, so, um, so I think in some ways the stigma is changing overall. I think there's much more acceptance of all kinds of, you know, diversity. And one of, you know, one of those things is someone who's feeling down or, you know, depressed, but I think some families are critical of people who want to seek out therapy. You know, they tell them, you know, go exercise or, buck up or, you know, get over it or smile or something like that, you know, and I, there is something to be said for trying to get somebody to sort of push themselves because sometimes the energy of exercising or getting out there with a friend can turn your mood around, but sometimes it can't. And that can be almost a cruel intervention for somebody who's really, really, really suffering. And so I think we need to find a place. If the family's not supportive, then it's it's pretty possible, I think, it is here to find someone, you know, a pastor, a minister, any a friend, you know, a colleague. I'm really having a hard time. Can you can you help me find somebody or um so if what I'm saying is if there's a stigma in your family, understand that. That's okay. Let them be who they are, but you need to go take care of yourself. In late 1980s, the depression was diagnosed approximately about one in 10,000 people. Now, like the diagnosis is at least one in 10, perhaps one in as much as one in four. But why do you believe this is, has happened and how reliable do you think these statistics actually are? I think they are pretty reliable. I think just, you know, based on the populations that I've understood and seen, I, I, I think it might have something to do with technology. So, um, but, you know, of course, we can use technology to, the, to feel better. There's research now on certain video games that might boost mood or, you know, apps that are about cognitive behavioral treatments. So I'm not an expert on that. I'm now studying that. But so if we think about, you know, ways to use technology, you know, to further, you know, to, to get over our depression, that's, that's one thing. And we can do that. But we also have to understand how technology creates it. And so I think that um, when you're sitting in front of a computer 12 hours or 10 hours a day, when you're very insular, 
you're not outside, you're not moving. You know, somebody told me recently in New York City now, there's a way to just, if you want a certain meal, you can order it and it will be at your door in 15 minutes. Like there's some, some place you can call. Therefore, you never have to leave your apartment. So if people are just sitting in their apartment and all these services are coming to them, we're, you know, we're, we're animals. Our bodies need to move. Our bodies need to go somewhere. You know, we need to get out in the sun or, you know, you were talking about the sun that you've had there over there um, where you are in the last few days. Sun is very healing. Sun has vitamin D. You know, we need to get out. So I think there's a way that we're addicted to our devices. We want to find out, you know, the next Facebook like or the next contact or the next message. And we're not running around the way we used to, free, rolling around in hay or leaves or something like that. And I think that's part of um, building forts, building, jumping in a pile of leaves. You know, I think there's, there's a relationship between the way we use technology and increased despair. Do you think with all this technology carry or is creating like more of a disconnection with ourselves as well as those around us? You know, I think what it's doing is in certain ways it, it it's isolating us. You know, I, I mean, it, it seems like we're connecting, but you know, there's all kinds of ways of understanding connection and friendship, right? So yes, if you're really communicating with a with a person that really loves you and has your back through technology, great. But if you have 5,000 Facebook, I know there's a limit now, but you, if you have a lot of Facebook friends and they don't really know you or don't really care, you know, if you had a terrible day or you feel like crying or, you know, the point is to have someone or a few people in your life who really understand you, respect you, and in the flesh can be with you. Even touching your hand, you know, there's a lot about touch. Now, there's a lot about someone touching your hand, holding your hand, looking at you right in the eye. I'm here. You know, I'm here for you. So I think we just have to leave some room for that. Would you have any suggestions, say, for people who are maybe addicted to this technology, like Facebook and Twitter, as a way to maybe change their, their relationship with it? I, you know, I think that's a great you know, great thought. I mean, I think it's just balance like everything else and self-sensitivity. So if you are feeling under the weather a lot, kind of kind of dulled and kind of, you know, not really excited or not really happy and you're just sitting on your computer looking for the next kind of form of stimulation or distraction, just notice that. Notice that. And don't be critical of yourself and don't judge yourself, but just kind of understand it. And then see what your options are for being with real people, you know, being with people who care about you and take the effort, you know, make an effort to go out. Even if you you're tired or you don't think you look the right way. I mean, so what? Right. I mean, we have to be real. Harry, what do you think of, say, mindfulness applications such as meditation and yoga as ways to help depression as well? Yeah, well, I think those are really good for for. Um, there's something called a, you know, a strong super ego, which is a very strong critical voice within us, right? And some people don't have enough of that. You know, people who are sociopathic don't have enough of that, but some people have a lot of that. Like they feel feel really guilty all the time and they feel like they're doing the wrong thing all the time and they feel they're judging themselves. So I think 
yoga and meditation, those Eastern practices are a very good way to learn to be with yourself in a non-judgmental way. And yeah, we all have stuff to work on. We all can, can improve, right? But it depends on the degree of harshness with which you treat yourself. So we, so I think that can make depression. You know, another thing about depression is I heard someone say recently, um, I think it was Mary Carr who, who wrote um, The Liars Club. I heard an interview with her. I think she, and, and actually this was something I had learned in analytic school. And she said something about people who commit suicide, they're not really killing themselves. They're killing those voices within. So critical voices from the past or, you know, people that might have treated you cruelly who are after you in your mind and telling you to do things differently. Sometimes it gets so oppressive you know, there are people that take their own life, you know, because of, of that. So I think that's an extreme example, but I think what we need to understand is that sometimes those critical voices that make us feel really down and depressed, they're not rational and they're not accurate and they come from somewhere else or someone else who maybe didn't understand us or didn't understand what we were doing. And, you know, we need to learn. Sometimes you can't just beat them out of you, but you need to, we need to understand them and try to think about whether these voices are really sane. So it's being less critical. So I think the Eastern practices help us have a much gentler, gentler way with ourselves and with others, too, I think. Talk a lot about creativity in your book. What do you think say, blocks people from being creative in their lives? Yeah. Well, again, you know, those critical voices, someone telling you you're not good enough. You know, I had a client recently who had started a book. It was actually a memoir. And then she just broke down. She was on a roll. She was doing well. She was writing. And then she broke down and she was crying. I'm nobody. Why, why, why should I write a book about me? Why should, you know, first of all, any story can be interesting. I think any life is fascinating. It just depends on how you tell your story. And whether or not, you know, it's something that other people can understand and relate to. So, you know, there is no such thing really as is what she was describing. I mean, I don't understand. Yeah, maybe we're not Mahatma Gandhi or, you know, we're not Martin Luther King or we're not whomever. But but there are people who have lived very interesting lives that nobody knows about. And maybe you need to express that. So. So she, so she heard a very critical voice within, and that made her stop, and it created an inhibition. So I think that's one thing that stops us from being creative. The other thing is we just don't have the habit. The Creative Habit, that's a book written by Twyla Tharp, who's a choreographer. It's a great book. But it's about accepting and embracing our imperfections, especially when we're starting a new habit or starting to learn something it's making it a ritual. So if we make our creativity, we're going to do it five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, you know, build up half an hour a day, commit to the page, whatever it is, writing, playing the guitar, singing, you know, just make it a habit because that helps it become a very solid, integrated part of you, a real part of you. Um, that's another thing. So making it a habit, trying to, not listen to those critical voices. We need time. You know, it's making a commitment to time helps with creativity. You know, even if you have phone calls to answer or emails or whatever it is, you know, I need this 
20 minutes, half an hour for myself. You can explain that to your family, your friends. I think they'll support you in that. It's also talking to other people who are interested in, in becoming creative because you can support each other through that. Those are some methods um, that can help and some reasons that it, it might be suppressed in a person. Do you think there is, say, a relationship between happiness and creativity? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I've heard this so many times. People feel you have you. It's not that you hold a state of happiness or hold a state of euphoria, but there are certainly euphoric moments. Um, there's something called flow, which was described by uh, I can never pronounce his name, Mahali Sudzinki, or is a psychologist here. But he talks about how when you're deeply into your task, whatever it is, there's something that happens when you can become one with it, and something releases in you and you can just feel good about living in that moment. So I think, yeah, there's definitely um, opportunity for flow, which is that kind of moment or a peak moment when we, but I should say at the, the get go that you have to kind of get to a mastery of something before you might feel that. So, you know, but you know, you, some people achieve that quickly. So like if you're, you're a closet creative you're maybe you have some talent for painting and the fifth painting you make or the third painting you make wow you feel that it's possible but for a lot of people it takes learning the skill how to you know use the paintbrush how to mix the colors whatever learning the skill and being patient patient with yourself through your mistakes and stumbles and not very good outcomes so that you learn the skill because once it's in you you, you take off, you know, like with music, once, once you know how to play that instrument, it, it, it takes you somewhere. What do you think are the unconscious fears and barriers to happiness? Mm -hmm. Guilt. You know, sometimes people have a lot of guilt, too much guilt, and they feel undeserving of, of pleasure or happiness or free time or creative time. I think that's a really big one. You know, um, very self-critical voices inside your head. That can be another reason that it stops. Feeling that one is not productive. You know, there's a there's a real work ethic thing that a lot of people have. You know, I'm a great believer in working very hard. But there are times when you have to let your mind go and just let let yourself have a break. Because play is very important for happiness, too. You know, child, child play, you know, in the woods or whatever. But adult play is creativity. Spont letting spontaneous things happen. So, yeah, I think those can be barriers to happiness, but creativity is a great, great way to to have happy moments. And what do you think it means to be truly happy, Carrie? Well, that's a, that's a great question. That's a hard question. What does it mean to be truly happy? You know, I really have to say, there's it, it has to do with being your authentic, your true self. And accepting it and letting that self be known to others through what you say or what you contribute or what you create. Because when there's a connection between your inner life and the outer life that you live, I think that's happiness. I do. Because when we're hiding parts of ourselves because of shame or, or guilt or self-punishment, we're, we're tortured. 
And I think when you're your real self, there's a morality to that. When you're truly yourself, it's it's moral because because then you're in a position to produce, be strong, be generous, give, be creative, put something into the world. So I think happiness is true self. That's what I think. You think it's basically possible to be this way, Harry? Yes, yes. And I think the way we do it is through having experiences where we are real. I think we can do that with creativity and solitude. Like we have our own thoughts. We make it the way we want to make it. We experiment. We trust our impulses and instincts in, in, in whatever colors we throw on a canvas or shapes we make. Because that's, that's us. That's us being true to what's coming out of us. This is why I always bring this up to a real friend. It is so important. I mean, to be able to really bear your heart to somebody, it could be a family member. It could be your mother. I mean, it could be just someone, you know, who knows you. There's such a relief of burden in that. And I think there's great happiness in that kind of that kind of connection. How important do you think trusting our intuition is in regard to our happiness? Like, you know, and it's a great question. It's I think it's kind of complicated because trust of the self and trust of the intuition is great. But you have to be in an environment where people aren't going to slap you down for it. Right. Because because if you're punished for being yourself, you're not going to be happy. So I think the greatest chance we have is to be our true self, but we, we have to try to get, get as many circumstances in our life where we can do that. You know, if we can get closer to the right job or closer to the right community or closer to the right school where somehow the people, I mean, we want diversity, we want different people, but where we're not judged or hurt for being who we are. And what do you think stopped us from, say, being authentic and, say, even experiencing a level of contentment in our lives in Kerry? Yeah. Again, I think there's, you know, a lot of people grow up in families where there's a lot of rules. You know, you shouldn't feel this way. You shouldn't feel that way. This is the color you should love. This is the outfit you should wear. This is, you know, you're not not allowed to have a mind of your own in certain situations. And I think while we definitely need to have, you know, rules and and you know discipline and structure for young people just for them to feel safe there also has to be an opportunity to know yourself and if there's somebody who's seeing things differently maybe there's some kind of genius and they need they need to go that odd path i think it was um i think it was thoreau who said had that poem about the drummer you know if a man hears a different beat or follows a different drummer, let him go, let him be who he is. I'm sorry, I'm not quoting it correctly, but um, let him step to the music he hears, however measured or far away. And I think some of us are scared, you know, if our children have oddities or eccentricities or are not doing things in a conventional way, I think we just need to try to understand it as much as possible. Um, understand them as much as possible as a unique person brought into this world, perhaps to do something unique. So I think there's a lot of rules. Rules are good, but sometimes there are too many rules. What are your thoughts, say, on the educational system as a way to either empower people to do this or disempower people? Well, this this is a very, um, you know, one of my favorite speakers is Sir Ken Robinson, who's done a couple of TED Talks on education. And, you know, I just love what he says because, 
for, for our country, you know, he says alternative ed education should not be alternative. It should be traditional. There's so many different kinds of intelligence and so many different kinds of strength and, you know, beauty, whether it's through the body, someone's got a bodily intelligence or somebody has a musical intelligence or somebody has a, a visual intelligence. And I think our schools, at least here right now, I've seen a lot, you know, I have three children and I've seen it firsthand. There's a lot of emphasis on cramming them with facts and knowledge and more is better, more is better, you know, stay up till two in the morning and learn more facts. And I, I'm just astounded by this because I feel that the mind and the person are, we're a tool, we're, we're a being, right? We need to be shaped. We need breathing room. We need air. We need experimentation. We need downtime to be spontaneous, to find out who we are. And when we throw too much fire hydrant education at a child, uh, you know, <laughs> it can be very oppressive. And there is, there is a lot, this, you know, as I said, you know, we are seeing a lot of this in children, a lot of depression. By the time they get to college, they're burnt out here. I don't know how it is there, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a problem. person is living an inauthentic life, not true to themselves. Right. Does it have the possibility of creating depression and anxiety I in their really, lives? I really, I think you're right. I do. I, I think it can. I think that the more we can be true to who we really are and be unafraid unafraid of that and of how it's going to be received and you know also a thicker skin if someone criticizes us for being who we are because your best bet for happiness and creativity is to be your authentic self so yes I think it can cause despair when we have to hide hide who we are Sometimes we don't know who we are. That's the other thing. I mean, in the Creativity Cure, we try to give exercises where you can really understand, you know, sometimes we have secrets from ourselves. You know, we've inhibited parts of ourselves for so long that we don't even know. We love, we love writing or we love, we love singing or we love something, right? I mean, being out in the woods because we were given a script maybe in our young life. So we need to, one of the things we help, we help people do is find out what those things are that really are real for you and how can you incorporate them into your life? Because the more of that we have, the better, the more happy we are. Depression is a lot of times from hiding, sequestering, you know, putting a big cover over what we are because we're afraid. You mentioned in your book about the five-part prescription for creativity, cure, inside movement, mind rest, your own two hands, and mind shift. Can you explain to me what these are about? Sure, sure. Insight. Insight is self-knowledge. To thine own self be true. You know, uh, the truth shall set you free. Shall set you free. These are these are you know, age-old wisdom from the Bible. You know, your mother says, "Be yourself." From the Bible, from Shakespeare, insight is really just that. It's, it's knowing who you are. It's self-knowledge. So that's number one, because before you can live authentically, you have to know who you are. So insight is the first part. We, we give you exercises to help you get there. Insight movement is the next, and I think it's pretty well documented in many scientific journals and psychological journals that 
exercise plays a very big part in mood lifting. It enhances mood. So one of the things um, we believe in that and we're, we're happy about that. The other thing that exercise does is that for many people, perhaps not all, a long walk or running, um, there are writers that have talked about this, walking their books. Um, Stephen King has talked about that, walking. Because ideas come to you, your mind frees up. You have what's called free association, which is, which is just free thought. So um, insight movement helps with, again, getting into that deeper unconscious part of yourself, your authenticity. So that's, and it also boosts your mood because a lot of times, you know, if you're in a very down mood, it's harder to celebrate really what you have inside. So insight movement, mind rest, same thing. You know, if you're going, going, going 24-7, on, 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 responding, responding, responding to emails and everything coming from the outside, there's a way that you disconnect from yourself. So, you know, we, you know, we need our Sunday rest or our Friday Shabbos or whatever it is. We need that day to recuperate, recover, reflect, slow it down. And I think we can create those moments um, in our lives just to have a consciousness about how important they are, mind rest. So we have insight, movement, mind rest. That can be meditation for somebody. That can be sitting on a rock in front of your favorite lake. It can, it's whatever it is for you, but just to slow down. Insight, movement, mind rest. Your own two hands, that gets back to a very concrete form of creativity, which is making getting your hands in the dirt. Maybe you're going to have a garden and you're going to grow beautiful flowers or, or vegetables or fruit that you can eat and share in cooking or making a meal, you know, farm to table kind of idea. That's, that's beautiful. And it, 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 it elevates mood. Uh, your own two hands using them. It is a documented scientifically shown uh, to be a mood elevator, purposeful hands doing something that matters to you with your hands. So that could be playing an instrument too. So that's the other part of it. Getting back to authentic self, being creative and lifting depression. And then our fifth part is mind shift. So this can also happen. The first four parts will help you move to a better place in your mind, hopefully. But you know, there's been a lot of research recently in the last decade about cognitive behavioral therapy as a form of changing mood or elevating mood is just a way of putting different thoughts in your mind. And William James, a psychologist, he was at Harvard and he's a great thinker, a great writer in the 1800s. And he said that um, the greatest weapon we have against stress is to the ability to change our thoughts. And so, you know, I, I've noticed this too. Sometimes when people, you know, at, at services, you know, people have all kinds of faith and different ways of practicing faith, but I think there's a way of, um, you know, some faiths have been seen as oppressive for some people, but it, there's a way of shifting your thoughts to a different place. I think it moves, cognitive behavioral therapy works in a very similar way. We just change our perspective on that thing. You know, if we allow ourselves to, to think too hard and ruminate and go too long with all the bad things that are happening and 
it really can cripple us. So if we can get better at moving the thoughts to a different place through whatever method, you know, formal cognitive behavioral therapy, talking to a friend, you know, going to, uh, you know, a religious service, if that's what's helpful to any given person or being in nature can sometimes move thoughts. It's important to know that um, our thoughts can, can be very, very powerful and can take over us. And sometimes they really don't need to be there because we're not looking at it the right way. We're not looking at it in a rational and fair way to ourselves and to the situation. And I'm not saying there aren't overwhelming crises. Believe me. I mean, I've been through them myself. I've treated lots of people who have had terrible blindsides and terrible blows. So I'm not trying to minimize that at all. But this is really more for, you know, there's a different approach to that. This is really more for having kind of doldrums or malaise or not getting the most out of your life. Things are okay, but maybe they could be better if you would think a little bit differently. So those are the five parts, insight, movement, um, mind shift, your own two hands, mind rest. And we do actually talk about two other things that I think are really important. And I see more research. Some research just came out of Stanford about this, um, about nature. The sounds of nature actually are very important for elevating mood. Whether so, they're analyzing that now. I can't remember the the actual the researcher, but I heard it on uh, NPR, uh, which is our national radio program. But um, you know, it, it's very much in sync with what we were saying in the book that nature can play a very important role in 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 lifting mood and also in creativity. Children who play in green spaces as opposed to asphalt playgrounds tend to be more imaginative in their play. That was um, out of Sweden, that research. So um, nature's another one, and friendship, as I've mentioned several times today, is, is, is really big for health. I mean, people with breast cancer lived, I think it was 18 months longer when they had support from friends or a supportive group. Carrie, it was said to me recently that unconditional love for ourselves and others, mindfulness and heart-centered consciousness are what's needed to eliminate depression. Like, what do you think of this? You know, I, um, I, I think I've always been. I have to say, I think I. It it's, comes from a, a beautiful sort of place. I, I always have a little trouble personally with the word unconditional, simply because I've been in a. I've been in a situation where I've treated a lot of people who've undergone like close to criminal actions against them. You know, abuse and things like that. So if you can find a way to love the person that the person, the good person within the person that did that, that takes a lot of strength and, but not everyone can do that. So I think, you know, you also sometimes have to, you know, if someone is continuing to treat you badly, if you're, if you show too much forgiveness and too much love, it, it kind of can make them even more sadistic sometimes. So I think it's good to have loving kindness. I think it's good to have a loving heart. But I think you have to sort of reinterpret what that means for people who have who do very cruel things. And, you know, and, and maybe it's just putting up a boundary. You know, maybe maybe it really is your way of showing love is saying, you know, I'm going to let you be in your life and let you live your life. And, you know, 
do what you need to do, but I need to put up a fence or a boundary because I need to respect and love myself enough to not let you do this to me anymore. If a person say is in an unhappy place in their lives now, is there anything they could start to do, like say even get to their mindset or habits as a way to become more happy and positive in their lives, Carrie? Right. Well, you know, first of all, if there's a crisis, you get you need support. You need to have some help. But if you're just kind of down, I think starting a creative habit is a really great thing because goals are very good for happiness. You know, I'm going to you know set this goal of I'm going to learn how to knit or I'm going to learn how to become a great chef with, you know, a vegetarian chef or, you know, get, setting a goal and breaking it down into manageable steps and then starting is really good for for up for feeling uplifted i think a, a creative habit is a very good thing and and then when you do have a crisis sometimes you know people have said you fall back on that thing that you do whether it's knitting or cooking or whatever and sometimes it can just be a comfort to you when you've already mastered the skill if a person say feels particularly blocked in their creative side of things at the moment in their lives like is there anything they could do to maybe express that or develop that you know it's funny i had somebody write to me recently and they said they couldn't get sit down. They wanted to write, want to be a writer or write something, and they and they couldn't get down to write because the, their thoughts were too cluttered and confused, and they couldn't write. So I just said, write the cluttered and confused stuff. Make it not make sense. Have have very poor punctuation. Make it completely irrational. Just whatever's in your head. You know, I I do that also. You know, sometimes I I just write whatever, and I don't use it. I mean, just to get the clutter out just to get action going with your hand, with your mind, with the inside to the outside. I, so I'm a great believer in writing. You know, it could be handwriting, it could be on, you know, on your device, but um, just, just get a process going. Even if that's not going to be your chosen creative form, I think we can all journal. We all have words. You know, words are meaningful to all of us. So that's a way to, to get things moving, I think. Interesting enough, I interviewed, you probably know Julia Cameron. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I interviewed her there about six or seven months ago, but she's a great advocate of the writing. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, she talks about the morning pages. And I, That's correct. And I, yeah, I love that, and I love her book. I think it's fabulous. The only, the only thing, too, that I would add to that is that, you know, sometimes people start to ruminate when they, about the negative stuff. So I would say that we need to learn a few tricks to um, when we're writing, if we're becoming more depressed in the writing, we have to notice that and we have to kind of take a step back and think about how can we can refute really in the writing whatever, whatever self-criticism might be coming out or harshness towards ourselves. you know, have some loving kindness if the writing towards the self, if the writing is too ruminative or, or negative or hard harsh would you have any last advice say for people out there who are might be say unhappy or anything along those lines i would say you know i get this a lot i'm not creative i'm not creative i don't have a creative bone in my body you do you do and it can be a domestic form of creativity it can be in your business maybe you're fantastic at throwing a party and understanding, you know, which people will get along with which people because you create an energy in the room, you create conversation, that's, a, that's creativity. So I would say look into your own life and see where you create energy, whether it's with other people or with things you make 
then respect it and go with it. That's what I would say. If a person wanted to buy your book, carry or even get in contact with you, how could they do it? So the best way, um, you can look at my website, uh, carriebarronmd.com. And there's a lot of there's a lot of blogs there. I also blog for Psychology Today. If you're you know on lots of topics, if people feel they need help with something, and the book is available on Amazon or um, you know through the website. Thanks so much for your time today, Carrie. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored to to participate, and I, it's been great to talk to you. Mm-hmm.